You are listening to the Tilted Lawyer Podcast, a show that inspires the legally challenged to enter the courtroom armed with a plan. I'm Omar Serrato, owner of the Eagle Law Firm, experienced litigator, and the man you want to talk to before your big case. My co-host is Ileana Clone Rosa, owner of Clone Rosa Law, and a rising star in Southern California. Okay, we are live. We have a very special show planned for you today. And um, I have brought in, as usual, the Eagle Law Firm staff. Um, I have Jocelyn Escada on the couch there in the middle. Um, they may or may not be in the video on YouTube because the video, as I'm seeing, it is pretty fuzzy. As I just loudly declared just a little bit earlier, I am a lawyer. I'm not a video guy. Um, I also have with me Melissa Pacheco. Um, been with the Eagle Law Firm for many years now. And by many, I mean three and I have brought in uh, Omar Serrato Sr., my father, and he is here to join us. And we're going to be talking about uh, a very special topic in a show that I've been thinking about doing really for a couple of months now. And the way that I got the idea uh, to even bring up the subject was speaking to my dad. He had taken a listen uh, to the podcast, I think at that time we were maybe two or three episodes in, and um, he specifically just started talking about this subject, and the more that I thought about it, um, the more often I see people come into this office and have complaints about their attorneys, the more often people are, are coming to me so- talking about how they want to fire their attorney, and they're asking me for second opinions and things like that. I think it's a subject that deserves um, its own hour. And so we're going to talk about it. And the way I'm going to introduce this topic is, um, well, I think we should go into story time mode. So I'm going to take you guys back 50 years prior uh, to, um, well, on the 50th anniversary of the JFK assassination, November 22nd, 2013. Happens to be the day that I received my bar results for whether or not I was going to pass the bar. So just to set the stage, it was a cool day in the afternoon and I had made the drive down to Vegas and I was, I'd got down there around four, four 30 um, in the afternoon and the results were going to come out at 6 PM. So I was staying at the Paris hotel. Um, I had a girlfriend at the time and, we were going to get our results together. She had also taken the bar on that um, particular administration. It was July of 20, the July 2013 bar exam. If you want to Google uh, that specific exam, those essays are on the question uh, or, or those essays are on the um, internet is what I'm trying to say. Anyway, we get down there and uh, we are prepared. We are pre-gaming like mad. The idea was no matter what happens, uh, with the results, uh, we were not going to be sober. And by God, we were not. I remember I had a whole host of a, 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 a custom-made mini bar. Uh, there, I think there was some vodka there. There was champagne. There was uh, tequila, I'm sure. Um, I didn't have much to go off of, but I had made myself a drink of my own concoction. There were some sour Skittles, and I put it in the glass, put some vodka in it, and it was delicious. And I was listening, it was around 5.55, 5.57. There was Marvin Gaye in the background and he was calming me down because I was, you know, tense 
a little timid and I was absolutely certain that I had failed the bar and I was just getting ready for the bad news. Now, this is back in 2013. Uh, the internet was not uh, what it is today. And so the stories that I had heard of people logging on and trying to get their results was that everybody tries to log in at the same time at six o'clock and then the website crashes. And so I was fully expecting to be sitting there for 20, 30 minutes, hitting the refresh button, figuring out whether or not I was going to pass or not. And um, six o'clock comes around, I enter my, my little number and then I press submit. And then before I could even register, all I see is a big green pass. And I was shocked, literally in shock. I passed the bar and I'm sitting there in my silent celebration, looking out at Las Vegas from the Paris Hotel and looking down upon the strip and realizing that my life was about to change in a very irreversible way. And then I look back at the girl that I'm dating at the time and son of a bitch, she failed. And it put a damper on the evening. And uh, she tried to be very happy for me. And at the same time, uh, ranting and raving about how she failed. And it was, a, it was a very awkward, surreal night, to say the least. I don't remember much about that night, but I certainly remember the next day. And so it's around 5.30, 6 in the evening. And we're getting ready to head back because I was not a lawyer at that time. And I didn't have the kind of money to afford a full weekend in Vegas. So we did a half weekend in Vegas and we were getting ready to go on our, um, on the way back. And, um, I got a call as I'm sitting in the Rio, we made a stop at this buffet, the world famous Rio buffet. And, um, we're getting ready to leave, checking out of the hotel. Um, and I get a call from my little brother and it says, Hey, dad is in jail and he wants to talk to you. I'm like, what? Does he possibly want to talk to me about, I'm not even a lawyer, literally just passed the bar uh, 12 hours ago. And um, it began uh, the, the saga that became my dad's case. And um, he's here to talk about it because I went through with him um, the entire process from, I mean, I wasn't there for the arrest, obviously, but I was certainly began the journey upon learning of his arrest. And then it was all about marshalling the family and everybody had questions that I was supposed to somehow have the answers to. Um, and mind you, in law school, this is what you learn. Learn contracts, you learn property, you learn torts law, uh, you learn civil procedure, you learn all of this law, um, but they don't teach you how to be a lawyer. And more importantly, uh, that you become ever aware of uh, once you start getting into practices, they're teaching you federal law. And very seldom are you ever going to use uh, the rules of federal law. Um, when you get into practice, you're going to probably start at the state level and uh, work your way up from there. You might have some civil cases here and there, but um, never mind that you have no idea how to present in, in front of a courtroom. And mind you, I was on the trial team. And so I was well-versed on how to make objections and how to do a cross-exam. And I know that on direct exam, I'm supposed to tell my client's story through my questions. And on cross-examination, I'm supposed to be very um, controlling of the interview and ask leading questions and never allow my cross-examinee to get out anything other than a yes or a no. I know the mechanics of it. But when you're a trial team attorney, you know, it's all mock trial. It's all scripted. 
The law is scripted. The outcome is scripted. Your questions are scripted. The witnesses' answers are scripted. And so you have no idea what it's like in real practice to uh, be a lawyer. So my dad is in jail. I don't remember much of talking to him after his arrest. I may or may not have had a conversation with him. I do remember going through the process of trying to get him bailed out, which was successful. And I remember that day quite well because the entire family had kind of rallied around my dad um, and were kind of using me as like I was some CNN media guy. So after every significant event, I'm literally giving a press conference uh, to my entire family and they would ask me questions and I would answer their questions to the best of my ability. Mind you, um, I'm literally um, not even sworn in as an attorney yet, just trying to get them to make sense of what's going on. Um, And they asked, they thought I had a lot more knowledge than I did because I had worked at the DA's office for a little bit as an intern. Um, And so I had some knowledge of the process in in that regard. Um, Anyway, cut straight to the chase. After that, there was a whole procedure, um, and I think that after speaking with a couple of different lawyers, I ended up working for a firm at the time, and I think the prevailing advice uh, was to take advantage of the public defender and get as much from them as you possibly can because they were going to do discovery and do different things, um, which is exactly what happened. But for the actual trial, uh, we wanted to hire a trial attorney. Obviously, it couldn't be me because I didn't know what I was doing. All I was was this guy that was uh, scared to death in trying uh, everything I possibly could to learn as much about the crimes and learn as much about the discovery um, to try to figure out a way uh, to uh, defend my dad in the case in the background. Um, And at the time, uh, the firm that I was working for ended up taking on the case. And uh, we had a defense attorney who was, um, in many ways, my mentor in my earliest years. Um, he ended up taking the case and trying it, and I kind of worked as co-counsel in the capacity that I could. And we went through this whole um, process of um, investigating the crime scene and, and investigating witnesses. I think we hired a private investigator uh, to have interviews with some of the witnesses, do different things. A lot of my involvement in the case was focused on the academic aspect of it and uh, making sure that we hit the elements, crimes, and making sure that certain motions were argued properly. Um, I never really actually got to uh, examine anybody in the case. The trial itself, and again, I'm, I'm talking about this from my perspective. I was neither an attorney on the case or anybody else, uh, or I'm certainly not defendant. I was the son of the defendant who had just passed law school and was in his lawyer infancy trying to make sense of it all and trying to communicate the whole process to my family. Very much uh, relied on whatever it was that I had to say. I'm certain um, that, ten, gosh, that was almost 10 years ago. I am certain that um, the way that I would have handled that situation now is um, light years different than how I handled it then. Um, Back then, I was very much, I was more, put it this way, I was a lot more pro-per than I was attorney, given that I was fresh out of law school. I knew a lot about the law. I sure did. I could pass the entire California bar exam. Um, But 
the act of representing a client and the act of uh, putting a defense in practice, I was uh, a novice. And so having gone through that whole process, I can speak to this fact that it kind of, it colored the way that I represented my clients for the entirety of my career and probably going forward uh, for the rest of my career. And I learned a couple of things from that case, namely that these cases are very real and they have very real consequences, not just for the defendant, but for the children involved, for the parents that are involved, for the attorneys that are involved, there is a whole ripple effect that happens um, that you have to be very mindful of, which makes the selection of your attorney very important. I've been in high volume law firms where the people that were represented had very little representation in the fact that they didn't have access to their attorney. They didn't have, they couldn't just pick up the phone and speak to their attorney. Most of the time they were speaking to a paralegal or somebody else, or, you know, you got to make an appointment or this and that. And it, it just, it, it dawned on me very early in my career that representation required a lot more um, than just signing up the clients and doing the job in the courtroom. You have to uh, walk your clients through. There's an empathy involved that is very real. Um, and now that I've kind of set that entire scene, um, dad, senior, um, from my perspective, that's what I experienced in that whole scenario. What was your experience being the person actually going through it? Well, it was an experience that I had no background for. I hadn't been in trouble with the law. Um, my background is in sales. I've got I, 40 years in, in sales at one point or another. Uh, so when uh, I was arrested and then I was charged with hiring a lawyer, I had no idea how to do it. So I was willing to take any suggestions from anywhere. And we leaned a lot on you because you had been through law school. Uh, we don't have another lawyer in the family. Um, and so, yes, everybody was looking to you to have the answers. And I, I see now and hearing this, especially see how unfair that was to you. That kind of puts you in a spot. Um, but one of the, the things that, that struck me and, and after I saw one of your podcasts was that choosing a lawyer is one of the most important things that you do. Because when you get involved in the legal system, your life is going to change. And, and it really depends on the degree of the crime charged. Uh, if it's a DUI, that's one thing, but your life is still going to change. If it's a criminal case, your life is going to change. And the thing is, is that most lay people, most people do not have uh, a background on how to choose a lawyer. So I've come up with some ideas that I would have done in retrospect, I would have gone back and would have done things completely differently. What I did do was walk in there very naive and and let other people do the work that I should have done myself. And that was to my detriment. Well, I'm asking you this question. I think that this is very important. I think you have to deal with the um, mental aspect of it. And so the night that you were arrested, having no idea um, about what was coming next, 
What did that feel like? Well, it's terrifying because you leave. And when I was arrested, it was in the early hours of the morning. You leave your warm bed. You leave all your things are about you. Uh, I, at the time, was a single father uh, with a high school kid. Um, so being taken out of my home um, was terrifying. And going through the process of being processed into a jail, um, and there's nothing familiar. There's no smell, no sound, nothing that you can relate to um, if you've never been to jail. And I had never been. So um, the loss of control was very tangible. Um, having handcuffs and having your hands behind your back and not being able to move, protect yourself, anything, you are just put in a submissive position and through the entire process. And as I sat there the first night, which there was no sleep, it was just waiting to get processed, um, I was cold, I was hungry. I wasn't dressed properly. You don't get dressed when they arrest you. Well, can you hold on a minute? Let me, let me put on some sweats and some comfortable tennis shoes. I'm pretty sure I was barefoot. And um, you're just not prepared for it. There, there's no way, no way to prepare for something like that. So there was just a, a loss of control and terror. And in that terrified state, um, who did you have talked to? There was when you were in jail. Uh, it was interesting. You, you go to jail and then you get to talk to prisoners, <laughs> people who are guilty mm -hmm. of, uh, well, people that are accused of certain crimes. And when you walk into a jail, you, you're good natured. You want to believe everything everybody tells you. And there was one guy I was in a cell with and he was swearing up and down. He didn't do anything. And I wanted to help the guy. Yeah, it's my nature. And then he had a interview with the detective right outside the holding cell. Are these your pictures? Is that you? <laughs> yeah. He was guilty of sin. Guilty. And I had already had my mom call his priest. Anyway, I was, you go into a situation with the best attitude that you can. And uh, that, that's what I did. But I quickly found out that you're in jail. You know, there, there are people, there's a reason there's a jail. There's a good reason, you know. Yeah. And so the criminal charges uh, that you were facing, I want to say that your maximum that you were facing was something like 18 years. It was, it was significant. And, and the thing about getting arrested and being charged with serious crimes is that your life is going to change no matter what. Your work life is going to change. Your personal life is going to change. Your financial life absolutely is going to change. Uh, you know, it's just a complete tsunami of, of change that you're just not prepared for. And that's what got me thinking about this topic, because one of the things that you have to do um, when you get arrested, when you enter the system, the legal system, is now you need to find out how do I navigate this? Well, you don't because you're not a lawyer. You do not have standing in court. You are more than likely not going to represent yourself. You know, you just don't know how to maneuver in court. You know, if you don't fill out a form right, you're stopped. If you don't make a motion, you're stopped. So it's very important to find somebody who's experienced, competent, and somebody that you're comfortable with. So one of the first things I did when I was arrested was start to figure out my budget because I knew this was very serious. And I know that good legal representation is not cheap. 
I wasn't going to find the name of a guy on the side of a bus that was going to help me navigate this, this journey that I was going, you know, starting on. So one of the things that I would recommend as soon as you find yourself in a position like this is you figure out your budget and it's going to be costly. I think my bail was somewhere near fifteen, seventeen thousand $17,000. The job that I had that I did not have after that uh, was clocking in at about $110,000. Um, the lawyer, you know, when you end up paying for was was the cheapest of them all. And if I had it to do over again, I would have interviewed more people. Um, but that was another uh, $8,000. So all told, you know, you're looking at $180,000 that night. Well, let me put, I think that's important to talk about because I myself am a trial attorney. I've been in trial and my first trial was shortly after your case. And I remember it very distinctly. And I learned a lot of things <clears throat> in doing, I apologize for my voice. My voice is going to sound crazy. I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm fighting off something. And I didn't even mention that Eliana is away because she's sick and dying of COVID pres presumptively or allegedly. It may or may not be COVID, but she, uh, she's, she can't speak. And so I told her to just get her rest and it was fine. And we'll hopefully have her back next week. Um, but yeah. If you're going into a jury trial, one of the things that you should be very cognizant of is it's not the same as hiring a probate attorney. It's not the same as hiring a tax attorney. Your case is going to be decided by a jury of 12. And who are the 12? It's uh, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, your friends, your best friends. It could be an 18 or 19 year old thrown in there. There might be a, a war vet, Vietnam vet in there. It's a mixed bag, but they're just people. They're not lawyers. They're not judges. They're going to pass judgment on you, though. And the way that they're going to go about that is by figuring out who they believe is more credible, what side is more credible. To that regard, credibility is everything. And so especially in the case of a if you're hiring somebody to do an evidentiary hearing. You want to make sure. I don't want to speak derogatory about other attorneys because there's millions, there, there's lots of different ways to practice law. What I will say is that I often see attorneys in court, in the courtroom, and the way that they present is just like everybody else. And they have run into a certain lingo and they're in a certain practice. And half the time when they're doing these hearings, they're half asleep or it appears that way because they've done it the same way every single time. They can't really differentiate. It, do, it doesn't seem, even though I know that they do because I practice this myself, meaning practice law, um, you know, one case is not necessarily different from the next. It's just they have a way that they practice and it's all very robotic. On the other hand, there are other attorneys that are charismatic and they have listened to their client to the point where their client's story has become their own. And they are there to tell their client's story and empath into the courtroom, what they experienced with their client when they were doing those initial consultations, those false allegations and the way that mom is keeping the children away from dad and how uh, this was all just a big setup. And how could I possibly be charged with all of this stuff? I'm not guilty. They got the wrong guy. They messed up somewhere along the way. All of those impassioned speeches that, take, that should take place 
in your attorney's office um, have to come out through your attorney in the courtroom. And that's not always possible if you hire the wrong guy. Now, listen, there's, there's nothing wrong with hiring an attorney who is, you know, not charismatic or, you know, does not present well in the courtroom because their chances are they're, they're, they, they're very um, up to date with what's going on. They know your case backwards and frontwards. They just don't present well. But if you're trying to persuade, and that's the act, that's what we're trying to do, you want somebody that has the gift of persuasion. And the only way to do that is to be able to listen to your clients. And what I, not to hijack the whole conversation, I've been accused of doing this more than once, but from my perspective, what I learned from your case and what I took with me and implemented into all of my cases is that little, the, the press conference thing that I did with our family, I did with all of the families when I was doing uh, criminal defense. Literally, after every, whether it was a 30-second hearing or a five-minute hearing or a one-hour hearing, I would sit with the family, um, mom, dad, uncles, cousins, whoever, the children, and I would answer all well, of their questions. that's a very important thing to do to stay connected with the family because in the aftermath of um, a trial, in the aftermath of an arrest, that, like you said, it's not just affecting the person that's been arrested. It's the family. And they look to you to soothe them, to tell them what's going on. So there's no ambiguity. If they understand, then they can take that as, yes, this I know this is true because Omar told me it was true. He came out of court and, and gave us an update. Melissa, do you remember when you first started working for me and uh, we had... Um... We, we had a criminal case right when you had first started. Do you remember that th those meetings we used to have uh, with that guy's family would all pile up in our little shoebox office and I'd try to get chairs for everybody and we'd sit there for a, a couple hours and uh, talk about their son's case. And um, that level of attention, most attorneys don't have time to give. I don't have time to give that kind of time to a commitment to most people but I will set it aside uh, because I know that we're going to have. That's very important. And um, they have questions and you can't, like I said, it's, it's not, there, there, it's very important to point out there's attorney-client privilege. Whatever is going on between attorney and the client stays privileged. But the questions that the family have, they're either going to be asking a defendant or they're going to be asking the attorney. And, you know, when I was in practice, um, with my dad and all my other subsequent cases, I say, listen, I can't talk about the case. I can't talk about any of the evidence. I can't talk about anything, but I will talk to you about uh, what's coming next. When's the next trial or, or when you could expect the trial to begin or the jury selection process so that you guys are put at ease. Um, I will talk to you about what the defense has to prove based on the charges. Cause that's public information. They're accusing him of uh, this. And so Elements are A, B, C, D, and E. If they can't prove C, then case dismissed or acquittal, right? And they need to understand that those are the things. And you know what? When you when you put that into practice, what I've learned is it doesn't really matter how many times you say it. They're going to ask you the same thing at the next hearing. And so it's just like a repeating process. But, um, you know, it's part of it. And I will say this. The very first criminal trial that I ever did, it was uh, this young kid. He was 22 years old at the time. He had just gotten married. 
and his case, it was a violent assault and battery. He was facing 12 years in prison. It was in Riverside County, and uh, he was alleged to have gone uh, to the house of an ex-boyfriend of the wife's who was talking all kinds of stuff and insulting his wife. And he felt that he should, you know, at 22 years old, step up and defend her honor. So he did. And he went to their house and then um, he got in a fight allegedly with one guy. And then the brother came out and he got in a fight with the brother. And then the dad came out and he got in a fight with the dad. There was allegedly brass knuckles involved, which were never found. Um, But he was accused of assaulting these three people, three felonies turned out to be three felonies and a misdemeanor. And uh, we went to trial on that case. And gosh, I'll tell you what, back to story time, my very first jury trial, and I am up, I'm putting in 16, 17, 18 hour days because I don't know what to expect. And I just, I want to do a good job. And in my mind, this guy's freedom is on the line. I can't, who am I to, who am I to take a 30 minute break? If I mess something up, this guy's going to jail for 12 years. That was my perspective. And um, we get to trial. And we're ready. We're finally, and when you're in Riverside County, if they set a trial date, you're either going to go or you're not. And if they got a courtroom for you, you'll go. If they don't, then they'll set you back another day. They set us back a couple of times. And then so on the, and and it messes with you because you get all this energy and ready to go. You're going to go today. Nope. We'll see you next week. It happens a couple of times. And finally on the third time, on this third time, I was really just hoping, you know what? I'm I'm just not feeling it today. I I really hope we just get a content. Nope. We'll see you guys in apartment 214. Shit. All right. <laughs> Let's go. Nothing to do but to do it. And then we're picking juries. And, you know, the, the jury selection process, it's like, um, I would like to introduce myself. My name is Attorney Omar Serrato. And um, this is a criminal case. And you are, we're here to pick a jury of 12. And you're, to, you're supposed to talk about the, the burden of proof and uh, ask them questions about whether or not they could be fair and impartial. And it's usually a day, day and a half um, event. And so the DA I was going up against was a smallish lady who was about eight months pregnant. Not real intimidating, not real intimidating. So I can handle her, you know, um, but that girl, that, that lady was smart as a whip. I mean, she might have had my number. I mean, I, she knew way more than I did. I'll tell you what, at that time, I would have been maybe... When was it? 2015, 2014? I was maybe not even a year and a half into practice for my first jury trial. Um, the next day, he's out. He's out. Replacement DA. Um, and it was this guy who'd been a DA for 20 years and the most intimidating guy ever. He wasn't very big, but he looked like it. he was the most lawyerish looking lawyer I've ever seen in my life. And um, he knew everything way better than I. He knew the judge. They appeared to be friends. And um, he knew everything about how to talk to the jury. I mean, he was a very well-seasoned veteran of the courtroom. And um, I'm like, screw it. Let's just do it. What are we going to do? So we pick a jury, and then we're getting into uh, the people presenting their case. So they're calling witnesses. And their witnesses was the three victims. That was the only witnesses that they had. Um, they were going through the entire trial. And, you know, I'm, I'm holding my own, certainly making mistakes, certainly making mistakes. Um, but in my haste to try to appear as if I was, you know, this season's attorney, I mean, that just kind of melts away. Like, obviously, I don't know what I'm doing. 
sidebar, Your Honor, can we just talk about this? Okay. Um, and a funny note about that. So a sidebar, the whole purpose behind a sidebar is so you could talk to the judge outside of the presence of the jury. And I'd gotten so used to doing that. My first civil trial, that was a bench trial, um, I told the, uh, the judge, um, judge, sidebar, could I approach? He's like, what? All right, come on up. <laughs> and then I get up there. It's like, a, what are you doing? We don't have a jury. Like, you know what, Your Honor? I don't know. I like I saying sidebar. I like she goes <laughs> Maybe they needed a breather. <laughs> no, but um, getting back to the story. So we do the whole trial. Um, prosecution rests. Uh, we didn't have any witnesses to put on because there wasn't any evidence. There was no eyewitnesses. All the witnesses have testified. And we did a really good job on cross-examination. And I did a really good bumbling job of getting all of the witnesses to make inconsistent statements, which speaks to credibility. And in a case like this where you don't have a lot of physical evidence, I mean, there was injuries for sure. There was bruises. There was no question that there was an altercation. No question that there was a fight. They weren't able to prove that there was a weapon. It was never recovered. There's no evidence of it. You might've seen something shiny. Well, where is it? So that was thrown out. Um, at the end, when they rested and then we rested, I moved for a mistrial, motion denied. Um, and then uh, the next day um, they came in and amended the complaints, which it turns out they were allowed to do um, and shifted the charges. And the judge allowed it because the elements in the amended complaint didn't greatly deviate from the original complaint. And so they left it as this jury instructions, jury deliberations, jury deliberated for uh, day one. You know, you're sitting there on pins and needles. When you have a case that goes to the jury, you got to be within 20 minutes of the courthouse at any time. As soon as they call verdict, you get your ass back into the courtroom and we're going to, we're going to read the verdict. And so I'm just hanging out, in, hanging out in Riverside, you know, at the Starbucks or whatever, waiting for uh, whatever and trying to, you know, do whatever I can on my cell phone and laptop, um, which I couldn't, you know, I couldn't go anywhere. Um, day two into deliberations and it was around 1030 that morning. We have a verdict. Oh, shit. And so you pile in. I, I got to call my guy. He's standing by the courtroom. I give him the same instruction, be 20 minutes by. So he pulls up and then this kid, imagine he's 22 years old. I mean, about at that time, I would have been 34, 34 ish, something like that. But this guy, he was 22 years old. He looked like a baby. I mean, just a kid looked like he could have been one of my cousins. And he's like, he's in, he's in tears because Hey, if they say guilty, your ass is going to jail. And he's asking, what if they say guilty? Am I going to have time to, you ain't going to have time to do shit. They're going to handcuff you and you can make calls from the jail. Um, but if they let, he says, well, what if they say not guilty? Well, then you're free. That's how it works. And I'm trying to talk them down. And um, you bond with uh, a client when you're going through that with them. Because imagine you're, you're sitting there. You're picking juries together. When you're sitting with your client, you're sitting at the same side of the table as your client. You're sitting next to them and they are the defendant. And the introduction that they have to the jury is that they are a defendant accused of a crime. And then we figure out what the crime was, you know, child molester, violent rapist, murderer, uh, assault and batterer, whatever it is. 
their first impression of you is you've been accused of doing a terrible thing. Your appearances, no matter what you look like, that guy definitely did it, you know? And so, and I, standing there as defense attorney, um, if I don't build credibility right away with the jury, um, they're going to start looking at me as, how could you defend such an individual? And so there's that whole aspect of it. And I'm feeling the jury staring at me and staring at my client. I'm sitting with him in that judgment and I accept it. I have to, because I'm his, I am his attorney and we're going to sort this out and I'm going to tell his story and then we're going to do whatever the prosecution's over there to put on a different case. I'm here to defend my guy. I don't believe he's guilty. That's how every criminal defendant or defense attorney should walk into a case. If you don't believe that your client is innocent, then they give him to a different attorney. You're not going to be able to do the job. You're not going to be believable. You're not going to be credible. How could you possibly, if you don't feel it in your heart, in your bones, the jury will pick up on it. They're going to know you don't want to be there. I've certainly had those cases. And in those cases, the guy was guilty of sin. He confessed. And I know that my client is a, is a scumbag that just uh, raped his 15 year old daughter and gave her AIDS because he confessed on the phone. I'm not there to do anything other than have him plead guilty. You know, um, would I accept that criminal trial? Absolutely not. I don't believe he's innocent. That's just my rule. Not every attorney has that rule, but it's mine. I have to believe in you or otherwise I can't defend you. Anyway, back to the verdict. And we're sitting there and lawyers take their positions, defense table on the left side, prosecution on the right side, and the judge sits on top of his perch and uh, looking down on everybody. And uh, he collects the, uh, he instructs the bailiff, jury, let him in. And then a single file line walk back to their seats, one through 12, and then the two alternates. Um, and then they ask you, uh, they ask the, the foreman, has the, the jury reached a verdict? We have your honor. May I see it? Yes, you may. The judge reads it. Um, and then he hands it back to the foreman. Um, and then they start reading the charges and charge count one, blah, 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 whatever. Uh, we find the defendant not guilty. Holy shit. <laughs> it's like, oh my God. And then that whole just, just uh, all of this stress and anxiety just rolls off your body. And then you just start anticipating every subsequent count. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Um, my guy had four counts, three counts of battery, and there was a fourth count. I can't remember off the top of my head of what it was. Everything, not guilty. And um, they asked if I wanted to have the jury polled. No, Your Honor, I do not. <laughs> I want to get out of here. My client, um, he was, he was, uh, he was bawling his eyes out, you know, at the table. And um, we walked out of the courtroom and, um, it was one of the most real, uh, triumphant moments of my career. It really does not get much better than that as an attorney. It's like you won the Super Bowl, you know, the World Series, whatever you've defeated. And then the, the 20-year-old, uh, the 20-year vet that um, I went up against, um, he didn't say anything to me. He's like, hey, good job, counselor. Shook my hand. And he was all, you know, done. After all of that week-long trial, no, done, over. Um, we actually, after the, uh, after the trial was over, not after the verdict, after both sides rested and the jury was deliberating, we went into the judge's chambers and then the judge talked to us about his impressions of how we did, not about the evidence. Cause you're not allowed, 
but he says that, gosh, I don't know, this case can go either way. And then um, he had, you know, some critiques for the defense. And then I asked him about what he thought about my performance. And he said that, um, obviously, you're very young, obviously, you know, inexperienced. You know, I get it. But what you had going for you is that out of the two attorneys in this case, um, you were like the everyman. Like, you're the guy that the jury, um, after the day is over, would go and have a beer with. Just seeing more human, more credible. You're not uh, trying to suffocate them with these big vocabulary words that nobody understands, legalese, and you're just being very human. And people relate to that, and they could appreciate that. Um, and I took that with me for my entire career because it's important. More than ever, I really believe that the best attorneys are complete human beings. Meaning that I've made fun of some attorneys on the show. You know, there are various video clips about the guy that's gone to law school because his parents told him to go to law school. And now he's there in the big case and he doesn't even care about law, but he hasn't really gone through anything in his life. Not much adversity. Everything's spoon fed to him. And here he is. And now it's his big moment in the spotlight. And he's going to make the big statement. And he goes in there, he's puffing out his chest and the judge is completely annoyed. Like, who's this guy? You know, I mean, there's, there's that guy. Really what a good lawyer is, is a complete person. They have experienced adversity. They're human. They like music. They like movies. They have children. They have empathy. And they humanize their clients. They're not just running a high-volume law firm, bankrolling the retainers as they come in, padding their bank account, making this a very transactional experience. The best attorneys, the Clarence Darrow's, the Jerry Spence. If you were to see them in the courtroom, you see these attorneys that walk in in their $3,000 suits and they're all polished and they got the, uh, the, the, the watch and the shiny shoes and the, the whatever. And uh, they got a, a, a mountain of uh, books and evidence and exhibits and, um, you know, a, a team of four different specialists to back them up. And, you know, they're there to do whatever job and they're going up against the Clarence Darrow. What did Clarence Darrow look like? Historically, he was, his face was ragged, deeply wrinkled. His closing arguments would go on for days. And he would go on these long rants talking about his clients and what they went through and their personal stories. And if only such and such would have happened, um, he would not have turned out the way that he did. And all he's trying to do is prevent a jury from coming back with the death penalty for his clients. And the way that he would do that is he would humanize them and he would step into their shoes and put on their skin and just become their client. And from a very human perspective, I mean, sweat dripping off of his brow, his hair just falling over his face. He earned points with the jury because he was human. I feel like having done this for long enough, that the same thing not only applies to jury trials, but it also applies to bench trials, also applies to boardroom meetings, also applies to classrooms. Whenever you have to give a big speech, a big presentation, the most powerful, effective speakers tap in 
to that humanity that you have no access to unless you know who you are. And how could you possibly gauge that if you don't sit down with your attorney and connect with him on some well, human it's, level? It's, it's impossible. And, and, I, and I think that uh, once you figure out your budget, you ask your friends and family, because who else are you going to ask? Does anybody know an attorney? That's a good place to start. And then once you choose three or four attorneys that whatever, you, you like their name, whatever it is, you got a good recommendation, do the homework, takes you a couple seconds, go to the state bar uh, website, check their background, see if they've got a lot of complaints against them, see if they've got, you know, because everybody, every lawyer that's practiced for more than five years is going to have something on there. You know, but if there's an excess amount of negativity, well, that's that's the only homework you can do on this lawyer. So do that. Um, and then go and meet with a couple of them. Don't go meet with one lawyer. Meet with a couple. Some will charge you a small fee. Some will give you a free consultation. But sit down and talk to these people. You know, what my son is talking about is that humanization. How are you going to get to know these people? If you don't like them, a jury's not going to like them. And, and you have to trust you know, your, your, your feelings and all your experience when you've met people, you know the good ones, you know the bad ones. You know the guys that are going to try to take advantage of you. Use your experience to sit down and get yourself comfortable. Um, find out if, if where your trial is going to be held, does that lawyer know that courtroom? Does he know the clerks? Does he know the layout? Uh, you spoke, Omar, about, you know, the guy that walked in there, he knew the lawyer you know, or the judge. He probably played golf, probably has drinks. Maybe they play poker on Friday nights. But you can't dismiss that. That is important. It's not necessary. But if you're going to sit there and start checking off boxes, that is a good box to check off. The guy's been in this courtroom. Maybe he clerked there before, whatever it is. But that, that's important. And sit down and have a real conversation with them. See how they talk to you. Do they talk at you? Do they talk to you? When you ask a question, do they answer your question completely? Do they cut you off before you finish asking the question? You know, these are little things that, you know, as a salesman for these years, I pick up on. It's important to me. I've been very successful in my career because of these little things you pick up on. And I've honed those, but everybody has those skills. So you sit there and if you get a good feeling, now you have somewhere where you can start moving forward. Maybe there's a retainer. Maybe there's something. Now you are in a business that you are hiring somebody. This is a job interview. And if that person doesn't listen to you, the lawyer doesn't listen to you, if they cut you off, if they don't answer your questions completely, or say that you ask a question that's a little convoluted because you don't know what you're asking, do they take the time to clarify? Let me, let me understand what you're asking. What you want to know is, and they lay it out, you know when you're being listened to and you know when you're being brushed off. I'll give an example. When you go to the doctors, you go to the doctors, nurse comes in there, she puts you in a room, takes your blood pressure, takes your temperature, and then you sit in the room. Again, you're sitting there for another 20 minutes. You were just in another room, in a waiting room. Now you're in another waiting room. Doctor comes in, he looks at your chart, he sticks something in your mouth, then he leaves. There's no conversation. I happen to have conversations with my doctors because I'm that kind of guy. Well, what do you mean? What does that mean? You know, elevated, you know, this, that, or the other. Anyway, get to know your lawyer. 
it and make sure that you feel comfortable with them. Uh, I wrote some of this stuff down because I didn't want to miss anything. Um, and yeah, I just want to just make sure that you like them. And after, after the fact, if you do decide to hire that lawyer, how much involved are you in your case? I mean, are there details? Does the lawyer really want to know, well, if it had something to do with a house or a room, has he seen the room? Does he come out to see the room? I mean, it is time consuming, but this is something that he does this for a living. He has another case right behind well, here. Well, that's actually very important because like, you're, especially in the context of a, criminal, of a criminal case, most criminal cases are done on, on a flat fee. Most attorneys that accept flat fees do the bare minimum. But if they haven't even gone so far as to see the criminal, the crime scene and done their own independent investigation, well, that, what are you paying important for? Because when you're sitting there and you're, you have uh, the, somebody else there that's involved in the case and the prosecution's sitting and grilling them, does the prosecution know? Did he go to the crime scene? Yes, he did. Well, guess what? If your lawyer didn't, then, well, there was a tree on this corner. No, there's no tree there. Just a little mistake like that cost you years and years in jail, you know? So you really want somebody who's going to be involved in this case. And again, I just want to emphasize what you do, you're doing this once maybe in a lifetime. If, and I hope it never happens to you that you have to hire a lawyer. But if you do, you're going to do it once. That lawyer has had, like my son here, he's had 10 years experience, you know? So he's going to go on to his next case and the next case and the next case. You'll sit with the consequences of that one case for the rest of your life, and it'll follow you. If there's a criminal conviction, guess what? Now you're a criminal. You're a convicted felon, and that's going to follow you. That affects what kind of jobs you get, what kind of money you can borrow. It affects where you can live, just about everything. So I really emphasize that you get involved, that you really feel comfortable, that, that you sit down with your lawyer once, and your case isn't going to happen overnight. You've got six months to a year before you end up in a trial. So this isn't like you're going to call your lawyer and you're bothering them every day. You're not going to have that kind of questions, but you are going to have questions. Make an appointment. Say, you know what? I want to meet with you on January 20th. And on that day, tell me where we're at. Where are we with the case? How are you going to present it? To make sure you feel comfortable. Don't let any question go unanswered. Um, that, that is the most important thing and that you understand the strategy that he's going in there because there may be a point where you get put on the stand. Maybe you don't. A lot of people do not put criminal, you know, defendants on the stand because cross-examination, it opens a can of worms, but maybe you are. And maybe if you're a hundred percent honest and nothing, you didn't do it and you can speak, he'll put you on. But now you're going to have a cross-examination where you're going to have to answer hostile questions. I have, a, I, have a, I have a different perspective of taking the stand as a criminal defendant than I did 10 years ago. In my opinion, in my opinion, I would much prefer if my client would uh, testify in I, his I own case. I tend to agree with that. Because, if, I mean, if, I mean, if they're articulate a, enough to not get jerked around by a very savvy prosecutor. Well, it depends on it depends on their right. ability to communicate. Right. Well, and, and that's my questions. point. When you get, get a prosecutor in there and they start flipping questions, they can ask you a question ten different ways, you know, and yeah. there's ten different answers. And if you get rattled, then and and I'm not 
judging anybody, but there are some people that I, if I was a lawyer, that I would put on the stand and some that I would not. It's just, but that has to, well, that's that has to be your relationship with your lawyer, that he knows what you can and cannot do. And a lot of that and, goes and, into prep. And it is the like prep. And that's, um, that's the part that you're, you are responsible for hiring a lawyer and being on top of your case. This isn't something where you give them money and you go out and you're, you're, you go to work or go party or go play golf and, and here comes court date and you show up and now you have no idea what to expect. That is, is just, it's judicial suicide. Be involved in your case. You are involved in your case. It's going to affect your life. So I just, for me, I just think that the more involved you are in your own case, the more you understand your lawyer, the more you understand which way he's going, then you can sit there and be confident because juries do see body language. Juries do look at your face. Juries do see if you, oh my God, what is that? And you're surprised? Why are you surprised? Is this your lawyer? He's talking about your case. You know, and, and if they see that doubt, this is this is theatrical. I mean, my understanding of what happens in a courtroom is very much theatrics. Yes, the law is very yes. important. It, it has to be. That's the backbone of it. But as Omar said earlier, this is about persuasion. And you have 12 people. First of all, if they're not, and again, not judging, if they're not over 65, they're probably working. They're probably annoyed because everybody who gets a, a jury yes. summons gets annoyed. How can I get out of it? What can I say? Uh, He's guilty. You know, whatever you want to do. But this is where you're starting. And it was very um, appropriate what you said is that you're sitting in a chair and a prosecutor's pointing at you and saying, He's guilty of doing this. And that's exactly what they do. Their opening statements is, He is guilty of doing this, and I'll prove mm-hmm. it because I'm going to show you this, this, that, and the other. You're already on a bad in a bad way, and you have annoyed juries or you know jurors that are sitting there. So if your lawyer can come in there, and this is something somebody that you know, that you've talked to, they can put the jury at ease, and you have the confidence in your lawyer. That'll show, you know. If you don't, that'll show. Girls, what do you have to add to all of this? What do you think about everything? Oh, there you go. I I hear you now. Okay. So being a part of this industry for since birth, because both my dad, my brother, and my soon-to-be father-in-law are attorneys, one thing I have learned is that the staff in an attorney's office is very, very important. And now that I am staff myself and preparing to go to law school, hopefully, let's pray about that, um, it's very, very important. If you have a staff that's not willing to collaborate and be an active part of your case, being you being an attorney and having multiple staff, you're pretty much, you're done. I'm sorry, but, but you are. I've had multiple, we've had multiple clients come here saying, I can't even get to speak to my attorney because I have to go th- through 30 different assistants mm-hmm. or paralegals and it's impossible to speak directly to them. That doesn't happen here. It's one of like, one of our number one priorities is that the client feels close enough to Omar to be able to speak and ask questions. That's like one of the priorities, always answering the phone, always making sure clients feel safe. This isn't a safe environment, a safe place, 
where they can come and trust us with whatever their issues is, whether it's custody or money or even going to jail. And they're not going to feel judged because a lot of people come from very, very bad and rude backgrounds. Maybe they don't have this kind of um, opportunity to speak to somebody without being judged outside. That's a good point. Um, I think a lot of people don't acknowledge the financial side of hiring a lawyer. It's it's a I want to say it's like a big purchase. You know, you do you want to do your research. You want to like your lawyer. I think you mentioned that previously. Absolutely. If you don't like your lawyer, if you can't get along with them, how will they help you with your case if you're not comfortable with them? And that's, you know, just a huge point. And I feel like a lot of clients from my limited experience so far, I've barely entered the legal field. Uh, yeah, but I feel that a lot of clients don't ask a lot of questions. I don't know if they're afraid of the answer or they're just unsure that, you know, they might not get the answer they want. Um, but they just need to ask way more questions than because it is a huge financial thing. It is a huge deal in your life. Like you mentioned, it's one of the a life changing thing sometimes for a lot of people. So I think the financial side of it is also important, especially because it's a huge financial decision you're going to make. So that's fine. Well, that's, I think uh, the, um, the, the final point that I would say in selecting a lawyer that, that works for you is that um, when I was going through my court case, I had discussions with my lawyer, but I also had a lot of discussions with my son, with my friends, with my family, and that was a mistake. Not because I shouldn't have had those conversations, but if I had an idea or if I had a direction that I thought maybe the case, maybe if we brought up this aspect that I thought was important and maybe the lawyer didn't look at it as important because at the time that wasn't significant, I should have brought every idea that I had to my lawyer and let him sift it out, let him decide what's important or not. And I didn't do that. I mean, I did to a certain extent. But you need to be vocal. And like you said, people do not like asking questions. People do not like feeling dumb. Yeah. So if yeah. I'm going to ask oh. a lawyer a question, well, I, I better go read a law book or something. Because <laughs> it's the same thing with the doctor, the analogy of the doctor. The doctor comes in the room. People don't ask them questions because, first of all, they're not approachable. They come in and they have their glasses on. They have their little chart and they're writing down. They don't look at you. They don't make eye contact. And I'm not saying all doctors, again, not judging, just saying that the, the fear of feeling stupid is such an impediment to, to getting your point across. But, you know, if I could go back, I would throw all these questions mm -hmm. at the lawyer and say, you figure it out. You know, you're the lawyer. You know what the courtroom flow is like. I don't. But this is I'm thinking that this particular aspect could have relevance in the jury's mind in determining what was right or wrong. So, yeah, it's the questions. And it, it is probably... The third, fourth, or maybe fifth, depending on the severity of, of what you're accused of, purchase you're ever going to make in your life. Yes. You're going to have your house, you're going to have your car, Absolutely. you're going to have your furniture, and then there's going to be, hopefully not medical, but there's going to, if you ever get involved with a lawyer, it's, it's and you're going to get, and, and to your point, is that if, you're, if you cannot get in touch with your lawyer, if you make a call and within 24 hours you have not been gotten back to so somebody hasn't addressed your issue or at least said hey you know he's kind of busy he's got court today he'll be back you know and you know, he'll get back to you on thursday then you know what you might be you might be in the wrong spot and 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 i'm only speaking from my side of the fence i don't know how a law firm works but i do know that getting an answer back to my customers is paramount well, 
Well, I don't know how it works, but let me tell you how it can work. Um, Because that's not only do I want my clients to have access to me, but I want to be able to have access to them. Matter of fact, you got really mad at one of my clients not too long ago, a couple of days ago, uh, because I was trying to get a hold of him to say something very important, which was like, hey, uh, I just caught wind that opposing counsel sending their client to your house tomorrow to pick up stuff that you didn't that you uh, don't want her to pick up. Uh, you might want to have the cops call the cops, get them ready or be prepared. And he ducked my call or didn't get it or whatever claims when he called. And then they showed up and then he's like, Oh, I don't know. They just, and I'm like, I literally called you. about that." <laughs> and that's the thing about communication and in any, any transactional relationship, which, you know, is lawyer, client, doctor, patient, you know, <laughs> teacher, student, you have to be able to communicate and you have to feel that you're, that you're being listened to. And if you wait, like I did, here's 10 years later, and I still wake up sometimes at Mm -hmm. night and say, Mm -hmm. man, I should have said this, or man, I should have said that. And here's another point that I haven't thought about until now, is that you do have the right, and sometimes it's a little more complicated than others, I'm sure, to fire your lawyer. If your lawyer isn't representing you well, and even if you're in the middle of it, and it is going to cost you more money because you're going to have to, you'll figure that out on the back end, who gets paid what and where. But you stand up and say, you know what, I am not happy with the way this lawyer is representing me. You know, he didn't bring up this point that I thought he didn't do this. He didn't do that. Now you're going to have to go through the whole, you know, rehiring a lawyer. I don't know if it's a whole new jury. I don't know what it is exactly, but I do know that if you're feeling that you're going down the wrong way, fire your lawyer and start over. And that's okay. Yeah. Never feel wrong. It's always okay Mm -hmm. because there's a variety of things in the world. You don't have to be an exact match for the first thing you choose. You have many options and it's very important to explore that and make sure you're in the right with the right person that you feel you're in the right path. And it's totally fine if you go through maybe one or person to share like, you know what? I don't feel this is the attorney for me. I'm going to go look for more options. It's fine. It's like when we get a different medical perspective or maybe we get a different, uh, for example, you're in sales, a different salesman perspective. When you go with a different um, real estate agent because I want to purchase a home, it's completely normal. Uh, Yeah. And you know what? You're not feelings get canceled out here. This is not about hurting somebody's feelings. And lawyers aren't going to get their feelings hurt. I mean, it's, hey, it's a job. This is what I do. And if you want to fire me, that's fine. I'm going to move on. I got other clients. Don't make this a personal thing. I mean, about their feelings. It's your feelings and your case, your life, your future. So speak up. So I want to make four points as we got to bring this to a close, as we've been going for an hour and three minutes. Um, I'm really glad we did this show uh, because you brought up a lot of important stuff. Speaking about the most, the four most important things you guys talked about, you're not comfortable with your lawyer. And you see that very early on, make the change right away. As soon as possible. Because you're not going to be happy. If you're not happy with them at the start, you're not going to be happy at the finish. It's time to get somebody different. Now, and if if you have questions about their approach, then get a second opinion. I give second opinions all the time and I'll let you know if your attorney is what they're doing is making sense or if I would do something different. Um, and I will be very honest, like, no, he's pretty much doing exactly what I would do. He's on the right track. 
Um, this is how I would approach it. If he's approaching it that way, that yeah, makes sense too. Don't think for a minute that there's a lawyer click. In other words, mm-hmm. that one lawyer, oh, I'm not going to go up against him. He's a lawyer. It's oh, not no. like that. As a matter of fact, I think some lawyers enjoy going after other lawyers. You know, it's the, it's that competitive nature. Yeah. You're not a lawyer because you're not competitive. You're a lawyer no, because no, we argue each other all the time. So don't think that a second opinion is going to hurt anybody's feelings or that you're not going to get an honest opinion. I have friends in, in this profession that uh, I've had uh, I've had significant arguments with over cases in the past. But we all look, this is what we do for a living. We don't take it personal and we're still friends afterwards. Um, but, yeah, if you're not comfortable with your lawyer, you just don't vibe. It doesn't matter why. Just get somebody else, somebody that you're comfortable with. Uh, the, the next point, availability is very important. For example, my firm um, and. Most of the other firms that uh, I usually work with or I'm aware of, for example, Ileana, uh, you can call her, you can text her. She's always available. Uh, for me, I have my cell phone, I have my staff, and our office phones are all tied to our cell phones. When you call my office, wherever I'm at, whether I'm in court, whether I'm at home or wherever, I know that you called me. If you text me, I usually text back. Well, I always text back unless no, you text somebody else. little brother. Which one? Oh, sorry. That's a Which personal one? thing. Oh. <laughs> except, oh. except to Miguel. And by the way, that's my other my other son. He told me on the way over, he said, hey, tell him to text me back, oh, damn it. <laughs> so uh, on the legal, I'm sure on the legal side, you always text back. But on the. Well, my mom, I'm sure has the same complaint. You never yeah. call me. Well, I mean. Like, I, I text yeah. you, and it's like, you didn't text me back. It's like, but well, professionally, did you I'm sure that, that what you said is absolute. You yes. Know. But no, you have to have access to your attorneys. Uh, most firms um, that I'm um, involved with or that I know about, you get a hold of uh, the attorney or you get a hold of their staff, and we're always available 24-7. But if you text me at 3 in the morning on a Saturday night and it's not an emergency, I'm probably not going to call you back oh until God. Monday. You know? Um, I might text you back in the morning, but uh, no, but that's very important. The speak up part of it. My job as an attorney is to get your story out. My job as an attorney is also to make sure that you're telling the right story. For example, if it's a custody case, we're there to make the orders that are in the best interest of your children. I'm not there to talk about how she's such a whatever because she's cheated on you 12 different times and she's such a horrible person. Nobody or cares that he about didn't all pick of up that. his socks. You know, yeah. There's certain things that you're going to want to say that are irrelevant, and a good attorney will go over why that's irrelevant with your client. And there's been occasions where, look, I just really want to say this, and they're poking me in the side, and I'm trying to listen to the judge and listen to opposing counsel and say, "Hey, I want you to say it's like it's not. You know what? Your Honor, my, my client has something to say, and then you will say the thing I told you not <laughs> to say, and then the judge will say. Um, yeah, that's not relevant. And then I'll look at you when you're done and say, okay, well, do you feel better? With your point right there, I think that comes on the front end for the attorney to advise the client, hey, when we're in court, mm-hmm. if you have something to mm-hmm. say, you write it something. down. When we finish, I'll go outside. We can talk about it. Don't do it in court because yeah. you disrupt the flow yeah. and the jury sees that. Not only that, but you want your attorney to be yeah. dialed in. I need to hear everything the judge is saying. I need to hear everything opposing counsel is saying. It could be the case where they're making their big argument, 
and they're sneaking something in there. And then you're over here jabbing me in the side because you have this question about you don't know what a word meant or what are they talking about? And now I'm distracted. I missed what they said. Um, and, you know, they, they finish making their argument. And then uh, the judge looks at me. He's like, counselor, yeah, what's your response? Yeah, there's no defense <laughs> like, to something you didn't hear. You yeah. just can't defend it. Yeah. But but you, you yeah, you want to get all of that out pre-hearing, you know, in the attorney's office and make sure you get all that stuff out. And most of the time we do, it, it doesn't, you, you're not, it's nothing's a hundred percent perfect, but most of the time, all of that stuff um, goes pretty smoothly. It happened a lot more earlier in my career when I was less experienced and, you know, my clients were asking me stuff, but a more experienced attorney could anticipate what's going to go right, what's going to go wrong, what are going to be the major issues, what are going to be big questions. And then I answer all of your questions. And then I've prepped you so well that you know exactly how this hearing is going to go down. It's going to take about five minutes. I'm going to say this, and then they're going to say that. I'm going to say I disagree. They're going to say, hey, this is my retort. They're just going to make a call, and this is what they're going to say. And 99% of the time, that's exactly what happens. There's no need for questions. I've already told you. We've already, like, Nostradamus. You've and, plotted and that's, it all out. that's that pregame that you need to feel comfortable with your lawyer, that you know where he's going. So you seem... I'm not going to say comfortable sitting in your defendant's chair, but you will feel at ease because what's going on isn't, isn't a story, isn't a lie. It's what your lawyer is presenting to the jury. So the last big point um, is about the costs. Uh, yeah, there are attorneys out there that say, oh, chapter seven bankruptcy for $200. Yeah, sure. Go with them. <laughs> I'm sure they're going to do a great job. Um, there, when you're searching for an attorney, cost is certainly going to be a factor. It should not be the f- number one factor. The cheaper attorney is definitely not going to be the better attorney. And yeah, better attorneys do cost more. And there's a big reason for that because we we have everything. Um, we just have we have everything set up in the way that we do things. Everything's very streamlined. Um, you get a lot for that money. And it's going to be a significant expense it's, more often than it's not. It's life-changing is but what I, it is. But I will tell you this. Um, if you get a bad result because you went for the cheaper option, that result is going to follow you for life. the rest of and your you know, life. There's an old saying in the tattoo world, cheap tattoos are not good and good ch- tattoos are not cheap. cheap yep, but yes. it's, you know, you can almost apply that to a mechanic, a, a, a plumber, but yeah. most definitely a lawyer, you know. Last point on that, um, most good law firms offer um, a variety of payment options. It might not be as devastating as you think. Even if the retainer is $20,000, if it's $10,000, if it's $5,000, whatever it is, um, you don't have to drop it all at once. Most people have, uh, most firms have financing options, payment plan options. Um, You might be able to get away, no money down, a couple hundred bucks a month. Uh, if you apply for certain things, it, it, you you want to ask around, get as many different possible scenarios as you can, because it might just be more affordable than you think. I would just say this. Do not skimp on that. Don't let it be the reason why you didn't hire the attorney you wanted to, because the result is what you're chasing. And if you're not going to get the result, you want to make sure you went out going with your best plan. And if it doesn't work out, it didn't work out, but you didn't leave anything on the table. You don't want to be the guy that lost his big case. And it's like, I wish I would have said this or that, or I wish my attorney presented a different way. There's no worse feeling than that. Um, On the cases where it didn't go my client's way, 
the majority of the time. Um, it's like we got their argument out and the judge just made, they didn't, they, they made a different call, you know, and sometimes it's the wrong call. Sometimes it's the right call. There's no 100% guarantee in law, especially if you're doing a bench trial, like in a family law case, custody orders didn't go your way. Sometimes the judges just, we disagree on things. It's all based on the same law. And if the law is very discretionary and gives the judge all of this discretion, there's not going to be this smoking gun argument that's going to turn the tide unless there's something obvious. And most cases don't have the obvious conclusion. And so if that's the case, you want the guy that's going to be the most credible, that's going to present the best, that's going to listen to and make sure that you get all of your story out. So whatever decision is made, uh, you're at least able to say that all of the information went into making that decision and you didn't leave anything out and you're able to live with it no matter what. Now, in a criminal case where it is really that black and white, um, it's a little bit different. Civil litigation, family law is different. Um, I guess the, the moral of that story is shop around, talk to multiple attorneys, get second, third, and fourth opinions, figure out your financing options, do not go with the cheapest option. Make sure you have somebody that's experienced in the area of law that you're going for. If you're going to drop that kind of cash and, and check um, their state bar record, check their state bar, do your, check their state bar, do your research. And once you pick the right guy, answer your attorney's phone calls and go on, put forth your best case. Well, and before with that, we get off there, um, I just want to say it's uh as a father, I'm very father. proud to sit here and watch you, you know, do your thing. You know, over the years, your success has been your own heart driving you. And after I leave here, I'm going to call your mother and I'm going to tell her to put you on retainer. That way you will have to call her back. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Well, thank you, Dad. I appreciate that. And uh, with that, I would have to say that uh, episode 12 has been, um, I'm pretty happy with it. What do you girls think? think we did all right? I think we did okay. We went a little bit over, but uh, so what? You know, I'm well, paying the bills. I, I think <laughs> so. they're good points and it's good information to get out there for people that are looking for, for a lawyer for the first time. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and with that, if uh, you haven't uh, found us yet, I mean, how would you be listening to the show anyway? But uh, we are on YouTube. We are on all of the, the podcast platforms, whatever you listen to, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the like. Um, please download, like, and subscribe our show. Uh, we record every Thursday afternoon, and the shows drop 3 o'clock on Fridays, every Friday, like clockwork, except for that one week where it didn't because of my court schedule. Other than that, um, I love you all, and we will see you uh, next week. And uh, let's uh, do the outro. Thank you all for listening to the entire podcast. We really do appreciate that. And as always, you can find us on YouTube on the Tilted Lawyer Podcast YouTube channel or on your podcast carrier of choice. If you feel we've presented anything of value, please leave a five-star rating, like, and subscribe. We always appreciate that kind of thing. And we do look forward to seeing you all again live every Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. We love you all. Take care.